What's up, folks? This is Tony Brewer. You're listening to or watching as the case may be. Cogitations. Cogitations is the podcast where we think about things, we contemplate them, we turn them over in our minds, and then we discuss them. Daniel chapter 7, verse 28, Daniel writes, Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me. My countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. We're not going to keep the matter in our heart. We're going to talk about it. Today, we're going to talk about context in the Bible. And this is something I've been thinking of quite a bit. Um, been dealing with uh, comments on a video that has gone kind of viral. It's around 100,000 views. That's, that's viral for us. And people who do not believe that the Bible is true, they try to use the Bible to discredit Christians for believing the Bible. And I'm like, if it's not true, then what do you care? Like no, nobody that I know of goes to a Facebook page or a YouTube channel that specializes in content about Aesop's fables or Greek mythology or, um, I don't know, Islam or Hinduism or Grimm's fairy tales for that matter. And they don't attack the page and they don't attack the material. Listen, what we're going to talk about today, quite frankly, it does not matter one whit whether or not this Bible is inspired by God. This Bible could be an actual myth as far as the conversation we're going to be having today is. We're going to talk about context and Bible interpretation. And when these people who believe that the Bible is just a bunch of myths, a bunch of myths, they use it to try to discredit the Bible. You come up with crazy things like, well, I have a myth detecting device. Whenever you have a story about something that nobody witnessed, you're reading a myth. For example, the story of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Everybody who looked back on that was turned to a pillar of stone or a pillar of salt. So then nobody saw it. It must have been a myth. Well, my problem with that is pretty simple. That's non sequitur. That's, that's foolish. That's the height of stupidity. Because the angels did tell Lot and his wife and his family, look, you need to flee. Don't look back. Don't desire to go back. Whatever the text says, we can go read it in Genesis if you like. But they're addressing specifically Sodom. I mean, they're addressing specifically Lot and his wife. But to say that no one saw these explosions and to say that no one saw these cities be destroyed, well, that discounts exactly how large of a calamity this was. Like you, you, the, the text doesn't bear that out. It was absolutely witnessed, and the only people who would have been punished for looking at it would have been Lot and his family. But you would have had herdsmen. You would have had people in far-off villages that were far enough away that were out of the area of destruction. I mean, after all, 
whenever you look at nuclear bombs being dropped. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it, it's bad. It can, it can, it can vaporize you if you're too close. And if you're, if even if you're outside of the blast radius, the heat and everything like that coming off of the blast radius, it can still harm you greatly. But if you're far enough out of the blast radius and far enough away, you can still see the explosion and not be harmed. So this blows my mind. It blows my mind how people that have zero knowledge of the Bible and have zero belief in the Bible, they want to discredit the stories that are in it. And look, the fact of the matter is, whenever you go look at the city, the, the storage of the cities of the plain, you have everything is logically arranged. There's moral lessons in there for us. And everything holds up to the sniff test. In other words, if we're dealing with fantasy, if we're dealing with something that's not true, it was still written well enough that it has the ring of truth. In other words, in this universe, it's possible for this scenario to play out exactly the way it's written. Now, you may not agree with the rules of the universe. You may not agree that God is real and that angels can come down and talk to mankind. And there's a, there's a line of demarcation between righteous and unrighteous. You may not believe any of that, but if you look at the Bible as a book of myths, as fantasy, then you have to look at it as a literary work that's written in a universe. And what are the rules of the universe in which this narrative is set? And then is, can the narrative truthfully play out within the, within the realm of that, of the rules of that universe? We, we do that with anything. We do that with the Marvel cinematic universe. I absolutely love going to YouTube and watching critiques of the modern cinematic universe, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the Hobbit trilogy, um, the Lord of the Ring universe, like, uh, the one, oh, what's the one on Amazon? Uh, it was so terrible. Um, rings of power. Okay. One of the big critiques about the Hobbit trilogy over the Lord of the Rings trilogy is that the Hobbit trilogy messed with the canon. It messed with the rules of the universe. Same way with Harry Potter, the Harry Potter series, those, what is it? Eight movies. They were masterfully done, masterfully done. And that's because a novelist did not have too much influence into what a script writer would have. And so they were able to make a masterful set of movies. But then what about Fantastic Beast and Where to Find Them? Fantastic Beast and Where to Find Them, a novelist wrote those scripts and she didn't do a very good job, and she violated the rules of the universe. So that's one way we can tell whether or not something would pass muster for being scripture. Does it violate the rules of the universe that it establishes? Well, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the story about the cities of the plains do not. But what this person was trying to argue is, well, your book says that, and that's what he, he says stuff like that, your book says that 
anybody that looked at it was destroyed. Like, no, that my book, quote unquote, never says anything like that. You've got to look at the context. To whom is the person speaking that is speaking? So these angels were speaking, or this angel was speaking to Lot and his wife. And guess what? Evidently, what he said was true because whenever Lot's wife looked back, she turned into a pillar of salt. So anyway, Debbie Mangus, good morning. Uh, Robert, uh, Rob Lady, good morning on YouTube. And uh, John Exum, some folks also don't know logic and reason. Absolutely. Good morning, Connie Barden. I think I said hi to you. And there's others. Terry Crooks, Brandon Wild, good morning. Uh, Reginald Perry, first in the comment section. Good morning. Terry Crooks, good morning. I hope you're doing well. And, uh, well, that's an odd thing to say. I know you're not doing well. I hope you're doing as well as you can absolutely be. And, uh, we're, we're still, you're still in our prayers. Um, Connie Barden, there is so much history written that is found in the Bible. I find hard to understand people who want to discredit the Bible. Yes. And, and Connie, here's, here's the thing. And I'm being very gracious here. I absolutely understand people trying to say, well, the Bible is not inspired. Okay. So the, the Bible being inspired is metaphysics. That's, that's, that's the realm of logic. But when it comes to this Bible, be being able to stand up to literary scrutiny, that's not metaphysics. That's just physics. I, look, I get it. Like, no, we're not talking about tangible you know, does a cow have four legs or does, does a cow have five legs or four legs and a tail? Well, that's, that's physical, that's physics, but metaphysics is, is the idea of reason. Now we're not, I guess metaphysics, you would say, well, we're, we're still dealing with logic. What does the Bible hold up to literary scrutiny? But what I mean by physics is you can plug these things into a mathematical formula as it were, for instance, Look at the creation account. Read the creation account, then ask yourself, within the rules of this universe in which this is written, is this able to play out according to the way it's written, assuming the rules of the universe are true? That's what I'm talking about. And you, and, and that, that mathematical formula is it's absolutely, it passes muster. That That's what I'm talking about. Maybe I'm not using, maybe, maybe that's still metaphysics. I don't know. Robert Lady said, I switched to YouTube because Facebook, Robert, I noticed that. And I don't know why I promise you that is nothing that anybody that has any control over our platforms has ever done. Um, I, I have noticed that after the live stream, I've seen some of your comments that I absolutely did not see, um, in the, in the chat. And like I said, remember, I don't see what y'all see. I see an aggregate of all the places and we're streaming on like seven, one, two, three, four, five, six. We're streaming on six different platforms, um, or, or two different platforms, uh, YouTube, and then in Facebook, we're streaming on, well, I'll tell you, we're streaming on my personal, the Christianity Now group, the Cogitations Facebook page, and the Christianity Now Facebook page. And then we're also streaming on X or Twitter 
at 1 Chronicles 1232. So yeah, for those of you that are listening, and if you're if you're wondering, well, Tony, I, I seem to comment all the time, and you read everybody else's comments but mine. Folks, I do not do that on purpose. Uh, in fact, I, I, I don't say it all the time because it becomes kind of rote, but since we're talking about it, I'll say it now. If you put a comment in the comment section that I don't at least address in a cursory way, copy and paste, copy that comment and paste it into the comment section again, but please don't spam, you know, don't like do it 10 times in a row, but there's nothing wrong with re-upping your comment because I am, I'm not, I'm not ignoring it on purpose. 99% 99% of the time. And if I am ignoring it on purpose, I will say, well, you know, there's Rob Lady again. And Rob, that's a really good comment, but it's just not germane to our conversation. Thank you so much. And then I'll move on. Or if it's nasty, like, uh oh, there's somebody in the comment section. They're being vitriolic. And I'll just go and block them. But I'll, I'll not block you for disagreeing with me. I'll not, I'll not delete your comment for disagreeing with me uh, as long as you're respectful. Now, the minute you leave the realm of, of, of respectful descent into vitriol, then you're a had lad. I, I got no time for it. I don't think anybody else here has time for it either. All right. Thank you for, for allowing us to get, take care of some of that housekeeping stuff, Robert. Um, good comment from John Exum. I'm not going to read it all, but, uh, it's, it's a good one. Um, let, let me, let me get the last part of this. For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's the LSB. Now, the King James says there's no prophecy that's of any private interpretation. And people take that interpretation, that private interpretation, and they say, well, well, you can't. You can't. You can't understand the Bible without some kind of special help. Well, the problem is that that's not what the the LSB does a better job of that here. This prophecy, this scripture is not written by the will of man. If it was written by the will of man, it would be subject to the same propensity for error that man is subject to. Um, Terry Crooks said the Jehovah witnesses just stopped by my door I explained that I'm already committed to my faith and engage in daily Bible study. They kindly shared Revelation 21, 3 through 4 with me. Afterwards, they offered to arrange a Bible study with a fellow sister to deepen my understanding of the scriptures. Oh, boy. Terry, if you want to jump into that, that's fine. But, man, I, I almost say you're cashing your pearls before, you, before the swine. Uh, let me, I'm curious to see what they shared with you, Revelation 21. That's an interesting if it's if that's what I'm thinking of, that's an interesting passage of scripture. Revelation twenty one, three through four. Ah, and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither there shall be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. You know, a lot of people say that, um, that that is 100% talking about heaven. I don't believe it is. I believe it's talking about the church, and I believe it's apocalyptic metaphorical language. 
very interesting. Something to think about. But yeah, I'm surprised they didn't tell you about the well, John, they can't tell you they can't say a whole lot about the hundred and forty four thousand. Here's a good here's a good deal about context. Uh is it Revelation fourteen? Yeah. And I looked and lo, a lamb stood on the, on the, on the Mount Zion and with him, 140 and 4,000 having his father's name written in their foreheads. Now in the beginning of the Jehovah's witness church, if you were a, a saved Christian, which that's redundant, if you were a saved Christian, if you were a born again, Christian, all that, both of those terms are redundant then you were part of the 144,000 that were going to be in heaven. There's just one problem. With the work ethic of the Jehovah's Witnesses and how uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses grew in popularity, they converted more than 144 people, and they had more than 144,000 people, rather, on their roster. So what if you have... 288,000. Well, you got 144,000 that's going to be in heaven, but 144,000 is going to miss out. So what do you do? You got to change the doctrine. You have to say, well, the 144,000 are going to be in heaven, but the rest of the people are going to be on a renewed, renovated, remade heaven on earth. But here's what I say about the 144,000. So who is part of the 144,000? And when you, when you nail them down, they'll ask. I mean, they'll, they'll tell you, well, you know, it's this and, but some of our, some, you know, we, we know that some of these people were part of the 144,000 and they'll tell you who they were. And well, these men are married. These women are married. They've had children. Listen to this. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and the voice of a great number. Now this, this is all, this is germane to the podcast. This is having to do with context. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. That sounds like a line out of a Disney cartoon. I heard a voice, heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps or, uh, Dr. Seuss anyway. And they sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders and no man could learn the song, but the 144,000, which were redeemed from the earth. Now we're going to hear a little bit about the 144,000. So remember, these people of, of old who were married and had children that you claim, Mr. Jehovah's Witnesses, to be the 144,000. Well, if you say that they're part of this group in Revelation, then you got a problem. These are they which were not defiled with women. For they are virgins. These are they which follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men being the first fruits unto God and to the lamb. Folks, I put forth to you that this is metaphorical. It's a metaphorical number, and it has nothing to do with how many people are going to be in heaven or how many people are going to be in heaven versus how many people are going to be on a renovated earth. Context is so important. How many folks do you know that have made fun of Christianity and they've turned up their nose and talked like this. And well, you Christians are crazy. There's only 144,000 going to be in heaven anyway. Oh yeah. Well, let's continue reading. Yeah. With my luck, I'd be number 144, double one. That's it. I'd be 144,000 and one. 
But do you see, you see how so easily just reading a couple of verses totally destroys a, a dogma from a denomination. The problem is there's so much cognitive dissonance, selective perception and selective exposure that these people that come up to, um, well, hold on. I can't remember whose door they came up to. Terry Crooks, <laughs> those, those people that came up to Terry Crooks door, they'll never, you'll tell them that they'll just go to something else. They, they, but, but look, if, if, if you blew that big a hole in my doctrine, folks, I change, I change religions. I am loyal to God only so far as God proves himself to be logical and worthy of me being loyal to him. If I find something in this Bible that is false, if I find a contradiction in the Bible, if I find something like this that blows that big a hole in my doctrine, I'm giving it up. I'm changing. I'm not going to hold on to something that's false. I'm not going to hold on to something that can be proved by a Yahoo with a $5 program on his computer. Well, yeah, Charles Taze Russell, that, yeah, he was a false prophet. And uh, <laughs> Terry Crook says, I needed to log into the podcast so I didn't have time for them. I assured them we could connect next time. Good for you. You know, some people have an issue of conscience with talk, when talking to Jehovah's Witnesses or people from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and it's because of, um, give me just a second. It's because of first, it's because of second John and there's something to be said here. There, there's some wisdom, but I think we got to be careful how far we apply this verse nine, whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the father and the son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine which the Jehovah's Witness deny the doctrine of Christ. They do not believe that Jesus was the Son of God, God in the flesh, worthy of worship. Whenever he said in, in, in the book of John, I am the light of the world, Jehovah's Witness don't believe he was actually the light of the world. They don't believe he was actually God, and they don't believe he ever claimed to be God. So they do not bring the doctrine of Christ. They bring an antichrist doctrine. So if there, any, if there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. Why? Oh, this is, this is important. This is the piece of information that Christians really need to get. For he that partake or he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deed. So even if you just wish him well on his journey, you're partaker of his evil deeds. You're, you're in violation of Ephesians 5.11. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Folks, Christians not only need to love what God loves, we need to hate what God hates. Now, some people have an issue of conscience, conscience inviting Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons into their homes because of this passage of Scripture here. They don't want to be seen as bringing these people into their homes and bidding them Godspeed. 
work, work that out in your own mind and, and do what your conscience allows. I have no problem inviting the Jehovah's Witnesses into my home or the Mormons into my home to sit down for a Bible study, you know. But when they leave, I'm not going to wish them Godspeed. In fact, I'm going to pray that God impedes them on their journey and they run into somebody. They keep running into people like me that are going to beat it into their heads that, look, y'all are worshiping a false God with a false gospel, with a false Christ, giving people false hope. Anyway, all right, context, 25 minutes in. Let's go to the book of Acts. First off, oh, hush up, computer. It keeps wanting me to try to restart to install the latest Windows update. I do not believe I want the latest Windows update from everything I've been reading. Um, but anyway, that's just that's just me talking. Now, let, let me turn your attention to the bottom left of the screen. Uh, remember, gospel meeting season is coming up, and I know where you worship or your, your uh, particular organization needs social media graphics and flyers and postcards. Are you part of a church congregation or any other uh, institution that's seeking effective ways to spread the word about your event? Well, look no further. Lindsay Dotson specializes in designing modern advertisements for churches. Whether it's flyers, postcards, or social media graphics, Lindsay has got you covered. Reach out through a private message on Facebook or send an email to lindsayfaydotson at gmail.com for more details. Don't miss this opportunity to make your message resonate both far and wide. Contact Lindsay Dotson, lindsayfaydotson at gmail.com today. All right. Um, folks. Let's look here at this uh, in Daniel, or uh, not Daniel, in Acts chapter 13. And I want to I'm gonna read a section of scripture and give some running commentary. And I want you to try to train your brains to see this. Because what I'm about to show to you is the, is the low-hanging fruit, but it's still what some people will go to to try to prove the Bible is not worthy of is not is not able to stand up to literary scrutiny all right john says i think the comments are frozen on the video well they just on my end it just uh it just come up let me do this all right now we'll see somebody y'all put some comments in the comment section let's see if they Let's see if it's frozen. Just put a one or put your put your favorite color in there. Put your favorite book of the Bible. What something? All right. I tell you what I'm going to do before we go any further. I'm going to put the tip jar up because some of y'all have that. Yeah, John Exum says some are not showing. I wonder why. Yeah, I'm only right. Well, I do see Facebook. There, there's a there's a comment from Facebook from John Exum, but I don't see anything else. I wonder why that would be. Good morning, Angie B. Good to see you. Um, yeah, there's Rob Lady from YouTube. There's Terry Crooks from YouTube. John Exum from Facebook. Scott Beck from YouTube. John Exum from Facebook, not to mention they follow. Yeah, Angie B is from YouTube. Yeah, I don't know. I if it's not working, guys, I can't. I, 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 I testing one, two. Well, there's Scott Beck's. Maybe y'all are just listening, not commenting a lot. That's okay. All right. I want you to try to train your 
brain into thinking this way. We're going to read a sermon from the Apostle Paul in which he speaks generally. Now, there are two, there are two, count them two, words that we need to very much familiarize ourselves with, and that is axiom and maxim, okay? In fact, let me do this. Um, axiom, A-X-I-O-M, definition. All right. A statement or proposition which is regarded as being established, accepted, or self-evidently true. Here is an example of an axiom. If your outgo is more than your upkeep. Nope. If your outgo is more than your income, then your upkeep will be your downfall. If your outgo is more than your income, your upkeep will be your downfall. That's an accounting axiom. In other words, if you got more money going out than you got coming in, you're going to be bankrupt. You can apply that to anything. If you have more calories coming in than you have going out, you're going to gain weight. If you got less calories coming in than you do going out, yeah, you'll you'll lose weight. I had to make sure I'm telling that right. So that is an axiom. It's something that is self-evidently true, established, and accepted. All right? But what about a maxim? A maxim is a general truth, a fundamental principle, or a rule of conduct. Like, well, you shouldn't spit into the wind. Okay, well, that, that's, that's, that's maxim. That's not axiom. Because sometimes you can spit into the wind and you don't, it doesn't bother anybody. But sometimes when you spit into the wind, it blows right back on you and it's gross. What about some of the Proverbs? The wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Folks, that's a maxim. That's a general truth. Because everyone in this live stream chat knows of a situation where the wicked have not fleed. The wicked have been very, very bold. And then you have seen where the righteous have been very, very timid. Gotcha. Yeah, so it. I have no idea, John. It could... Oh, hello, Sword and Pearls. Good to see you. Uh, David Stafford. I don't know why. Is David Stafford on Facebook? I usually see David Stafford's comments. Yeah, I do, I do not know what's going on. Hopefully, hopefully it'll sort itself out. All right. Now, pardon me, I'm knocking stuff off my desk. So, maxim and axiom. We have to understand the difference between general truth and specific truth, for lack of a better term. Well, axiomatic versus maxiomatic, I guess. Anyway, now let's get into this uh, sermon by Paul. All right, then Paul, verse 16 of Acts chapter 13. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, Men of Israel and ye that fear God give audience. The God of this people 
of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with a high right arm brought he them out of it. And about the time of forty years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that, he gave unto them judges. Do you see how this is not very specific? This is just hitting the high points. He's speaking to a group of Jews, of a group of Hebrews that don't need the minutia. All right. And after that, he gave to them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years, and when he had removed him. Now, that's the first, that's the first line I want to bring to your attention. Who is it that got rid of Saul? I mean, go back and read the account of Saul. Saul never stepped down as king. David was anointed, and David had to take the throne by force. But yet here, Paul says God got rid of him. Saul ended up committing Harry Carey. He, 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 he fell on his own sword. So you could make the argument, well, did, did God get rid of him or did Saul get rid of himself? Well, it depends on how you look at it. Who set in motion the, the uh, order, the sequence of events that led to David taking the throne in earnest? It was God. Whose instructions were the people of God following that ended with David sitting on the throne? It was God. So Paul is talking about how God is working through the medium and agency of others, but it's still God doing it. You see how important context is? You see how important knowing the difference between an axiom and a maxim is? Now, again, this stands up to literary scrutiny, whether or not it's actually inspired by God. Because here we have a sermon that's recorded by a historian, and we have what he said, and the person that is preaching is speaking generally, and everything they're saying is true, but it's but if you interpret it through a lens of pedantry, and again, that may be a word with which you're not familiar, P-E-D-A-N-T-R-Y, pedantry is excessive concern with minor details and rules. So if you read this through a lens of pedantry and you throw out the definition and difference between maxim and axiom, you're going to say, well, wait a second. Paul here is wrong. So therefore there's a contradiction because it wasn't God that got rid of Saul. Saul got rid of himself. Interesting but we know the context and it's not historical context. It's we know how to read literature. This holds up to literary scrutiny, whether the Bible's real or not, whether the Bible's real, obviously it's real. I'm holding it in my hand, but whether the Bible's inspired or not, it still holds up to literary scrutiny. All right. All right. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them, David to be their King 
to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Now, wait a second. Just wait a second, folks. I thought God was supposed to be omniscient. And what that means is he's omniscience. He's all-knowing. David had to be found like God had to look for him. You don't think God just wouldn't know where he was? Think about reading the speaking of the book of Revelation. Do you remember whenever the seal had to be broken and they looked all over heaven to to find somebody worthy to break this seal? And then they found the lamb. Turns out he was the only one worthy. Don't you think heaven already knew that? Why do you think where it's communicated unto us that they needed somebody to break this seal and open this book and they looked for every, looked off over heaven for somebody that was worthy and they found the lamb? That's not to say that God needed to look for somebody. It's we needed to know God looked. It's a way to communicate. The only person that could do this is Jesus. Well, same way here. I have found David, the son of Jesse. In other words, God is communicating. I have set my countenance upon David, the son of Jesse. He's my guy. Remember, this stands up to literary scrutiny. You've got to look at the context and read this and, and, and interpret this as you would any other piece of literature. All right. A man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Well, wait a second. I thought David sinned. I thought he murdered uh, Uriah the Hittite. I thought he had a baby out of wedlock. I thought he numbered the people. When it come to being a king, David was a penitent person, and he accomplished all the will of God. When it comes to a person, David kind of fell short. But you see, Paul is speaking in generalities. And if we are overly concerned with pedantry, we won't read this as it was given, which is I'm I'm painting this very lo-fi picture with words. All right? Of verse 23, of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Now, wait a second. What do you mean to all? You mean every single person heard this sermon from John about the baptism of repentance? No, we're speaking generally. Enough people heard of the preaching of John that it is a general truth that you could say all people, all right? And as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he, but behold, there cometh one after me whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. This is not the exact words of John the Baptist. But this is, in effect, what he said. So, therefore, this is a maxim. It's generally true. 
Paul is not saying, here's a verbatim quote of what John said. Remember, train your brain to think like this, okay? Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them concerning him. I think this is a very interesting verse. It has nothing to do with the topic of our podcast this morning, but I would like for you to focus your attention on it and think about the neat idea that God knew what these people were going to do. And he planned on that while all the while trying to convince them not to do it. Uh, yes, generally speaking, Paul, well, in the context, you could say in the context, Paul is talking about, I know how to both be abased and I know how to abound. So he, he, he Paul just knows how to exist in contentment. But yes, max, max, I don't know how to say maximally, maximatically. Like I could, I can say axiomatically. I just don't know what the adverb form of maxim is anyway, but taking that as a maxim. Yeah, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Now that's not talking about loosening the pickle jar, but that's, that's the things that I try to do in my life. If I'm able to do them, it's because I'm being strengthened by the knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Specifically in the context, though, it's Paul knows how to both be abased and how to abound. He knows how to live with very, very little, and he knows how to live with a whole lot. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't. Th that would be an interesting uh, conversation to have with someone that was more, more uh, philologically inclined. <laughs> Talk about a five-dollar word. Um, I would be interested to speak to an actual philologist and pick their brain about 413 of Philippians. Is that a maxim or is it an axiom or is it something totally different that I'm not even aware exists? All right. Um, but good question. So I love this though, for they that dwelt at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in continuing in condemning him. So God tried to explain to the people who Jesus was. They still, because of their ignorance, they killed him. They refused. They refused to learn. Anyway, they don't have anything to do with the context or the lesson in the podcast. All right. Verse 28. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. Well, go back and read the gospel accounts. Who is it that found Jesus innocent and no cause for death? It was Pilate. He's the one that came out to the Jews and said, there's no reason to kill this man. I'm washing my hands of him. But yet we're not speaking specifically here. Paul is hitting the high notes. And it is generally true, It's in, in, in the, and it depending on how you look at it. The Jews that were hollering crucify him, they didn't disagree with Pilate. 
They just leapt at the chance to have set Barabbas free and crucified Jesus. So again, learn, see those things. Learn how to see those things, all right? And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. Now, wait a second. The word they here is a pronoun, and it means the people at large. They did not take him down from the cross and bury him. In fact, it was two of his faithful disciples. It was Joseph of Arimathea, and it was Nicodemus. But we're speaking in generalities here. Now, here's the big one, verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. Now, grammatically, the word God here, that's not God the Son. This is not Jesus. Grammatically, it's God the Father or God the Holy Spirit, but probably God the Father. Well, who raised Jesus from the dead? All right. Well, we can go back to Acts chapter 3, and we can read something here. Let's see. Bear with me. Yeah. Verse 26 of Acts chapter 3. Unto you first, God, having raised up his son, Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from his iniquities. So in this sermon, Peter clarifies then the juxtaposition God who raised up his son. Grammatically, this must be God the Father raised up his son. All right. Well, let's go to Romans chapter 8. Many of you know where I'm going. Romans 8. Give me just a second. It always takes me a while to find this verse. Um, It may be verse 8. No. right here, verse 11, Romans 8, verse 11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. I have seen people go to Romans 8, 11 and say, look, that's the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit lives right inside of you. All right. So that's the Holy, that's the spirit that raised Christ from the dead. So is it the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead? Or is it God the Father who raised Christ from the dead? I'm glad you asked. Let's go to Romans 1. John said, and that's my view. Well, it's that's a not a hermeneutically sound view. If Romans eight, if you think Romans eight eleven is talking about the Holy Spirit, all right. <clears throat> Romans one concerning his. This comes in the middle of a sentence, verse three. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Well, the Holy Spirit certainly played a part in the resurrection from the dead. 
But then let's go to the book of John. John chapter 2. Verse 19, Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, what's he talking about here? Then said the Jews, forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and Oops, and the word which Jesus had said. Now, going back to Acts chapter 13, but God raised him from the dead. Paul is not speaking pedantically. He's not being pedantic here. Paul is giving generalities. We can be very dogmatic about things, and we can, we can go in and out of axiomatic and maxiomatic statements when it suits us. But we have to be consistent. And we have to figure out exactly the style of speaking, the style of writing. We have to look at the grammar. We have to look at the historical and cultural context. And we have to see what's going on. Because if we if we don't learn how to engage with the scripture in this way. We're going to be like that idiot atheist that says, well, because Sodom and Gomorrah, their their being destroyed was not seen, then it must not have happened. I'm like, eh, that's not it. Yeah, the Father raised Christ, Christ raised himself, and the Spirit raised him as well. That is a logical absurdity. All three did not raise him separately. Each one had to have a role. To explain it like that is is not to deal with the issue at hand. Um, it was God's will that Jesus was raised from the dead. So you have the will, the the Jesus Himself. And you have the communicable, the communicative power, or the communicative uh, aspect of that essence, and all three of those work together in unison in order to raise raise Jesus from the dead. But I do not believe in Romans chapter eleven. Well, first off, you um, let me let me go to Romans chapter eight eleven, and I'll throw throw a gauntlet down here. I do this every once in a while. All right, here it is, Romans 8. I'm going to start verse 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, then the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwelleth in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. I will give you $1,000 to definitively find, to give me the definitive answer 
on what the antecedent to the pronoun his is in Romans chapter 11. And the fact is, nobody can do it. Not definitively. Because there's two different ways or three different ways the word spirit can be used here. God, so you have the Holy Spirit as a separate entity, but it can be said, well, you have the Spirit of God the Father in you. Now, what does that mean? Is that, is that always talking about the Holy Spirit? No. No, that, that, that can be used, for instance, as, well, you have the attributes of God. In other words, you've been made partakers of the divine nature. And now think about this as well. Um, but you're not in the flesh, but the, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, what do you mean the spirit is life? Does that mean that the Holy spirit has to literally dwell inside of me? Well, God forbid. In fact, that's a logical absurdity to put the, the, the person of deity inside a body that is degrading. All right. But let's go to John chapter six. Let's see. It is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. You know what I get from Romans 11? Or Romans 8, 11? If this spirit of Christ dwells in you, then that spirit is life. Folks, that's a reference to the word. Listen to it. If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. We're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. You have to be born again of water and the spirit. Now, how in the world do I take that from what we've looked at today and figure out what in the world I need? Check it out. Let's go to 2 Peter. I need to be made partakers of the divine nature. How am I made partakers of the divine nature? I have to ingest the word. The word of God has to live in me. That's the exact same thing as saying the spirit of God living in me. The life in me is the spirit of God. Another way to say that's the word of God, folks. Listen, Second Peter chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So right there, how do we obtain knowledge and or how do we obtain grace and peace? It's through knowledge. How do we obtain knowledge? 
Well, the Holy Spirit imparts knowledge. Well, how does the Holy Spirit impart knowledge? Well, he did it 2,000 years ago, and it was written down. So how do we take in this knowledge? How do we take in the Spirit? We read. The words that I speak, their spirit, their life, you need to have the Spirit indwell you. Now, the Holy Spirit is not the Word of God. That, that, that would be interpreting my words through the lens of pedantry. We're speaking maxiomatic. We're speaking metaphorically. But we're appropriating and using the style of language the syntax, the semantics that Scripture uses. I want grace and peace be multiplied unto me. That means that I have to take in more and more of the Word, the Spirit. We see this in parallel passages in Colossians and Ephesians. Ephesians 5.19, speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Colossians, well, actually, 5.18, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in the arts of the Lord, uh, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him, by Jesus the Son, and then submitting one to another, submitting yourselves one to another. Then you go to Colossians 3, uh, 16 and 17, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Oh, so I'm going to let the word of Christ dwell in me richly in one passage. And the other passage says, be filled with the spirit. How am I filled with the spirit? Well, one, there are three ways. Speaking to yourselves in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Giving thanks to God and the Father by Jesus Christ. Submitting yourselves one to another. That's how I'm filled with the spirit. Colossians, Paul describes that as letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another. How do I do that? Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. That's, that's how you do it. All right. Verse 4. Whereby. Well, whereby. All right. Hold on a second. I missed the verse. Uh, grace and knowledge are, are uh, multiplied. Grace and peace are multiplied through the knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. So the knowledge of Jesus is whereby we are given exceeding great and precious promises, that by these, the promises that are given by the knowledge of Jesus, which comes through the word of God, we're made partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through our desires. Now, besides this, we still need to grow. We need to give all diligence. We need to add to our faith virtue, our virtue knowledge, to our knowledge temperance, to temperance patience, to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, all of this that we've gone through right now, the beginning of that trip was 
looking at, but God raised him from the dead. So I've got to figure out from this general statement, I'm going to be thinking about the very specific axiomatic things, and I've got to discern what's literal, what's metaphorical, what's an axiom, what's a maxim, what's general, what's specific. And I cannot bleed different passages of scriptures that are written in different styles together and lump them into the same literary style. If I do, I'm going to do foolish stuff like say, well, because Lot and his family were told if they look back, it's going to be bad for them. That means everybody that looked at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah would have turned to a pillar of salt. Therefore, nobody witnessed it. Therefore, how can anybody have written about it? Therefore, the Bible is just a myth. It takes work to train your mind to be able to look at these things this way. It is such a lazy hermeneutic to go to a passage of Scripture and be like, well, that's just what it says. We need to, we need to lean into the fact that my interpretation is just as valid as your interpretation. Now, through discourse and dialogue, we need to figure out whose interpretation is right. But in the last few weeks, I've seen plenty of posts on Facebook from my brethren. Well, when I quote scripture and, and you say, well, that's just your interpretation. Look, there are people that believe that in order to be saved, you just have to say a sinner's prayer. All right, so if I say, oh, really? You think that you can just pray and accept Jesus into your heart and you're saved? Well, Mark 16, 15, and 16. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes in his baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Well, look, that's just your interpretation. Well, that's not my interpretation. That's just what the Bible says. The Bible didn't say anything. And that is your interpretation. Obviously, the person you're quoting that scripture to doesn't interpret it the way you've interpreted it. So now you need to come together and let's get their interpretation. Let's get our interpretation. Let's be honest with what it is. It's our interpretation. But you got to show me where my interpretation is wrong. How is it out of context? How is it out of character with, with reasonable literary scrutiny? How is it out of context or how is it, how does, how does it, uh, set with the rules of grammar. And the problem is people, I'm going to say this, I, I try not to paint with too broad a brush, but most folks, including my contemporaries in my field of profession, they're too lazy to study that deep. They just say, well, look at what it says right here. Obviously, this is true. Obviously, God raised Jesus from the dead because Acts chapter 13, 30. All right. Folks, we got we to gotta treat hermeneutics rightly. We got to, so we got to do better. It's so vague. And what do you mean do better? I, I mean, we need to learn how to interpret scripture. 
We really do. The more denominational the Church of Christ becomes, the less I see in my brethren the ability to look at Scripture like I've looked at this sermon today. And I'd be right there with them, but for all of the experience that I have with various people around the world because of what I've been doing on Facebook for the last, I don't know, almost 10 years now. It's very rarely as simple as what you think it is. It's very rarely as simple as what you think it is. All right. I think that's all I've got. Learn how to scrutinize the text. Learn how to interact with the text. You know, we've looked at Romans 8, 11 there, his spirit. Be honest with that when you read it. That text does not give you enough information to apply to any doctrine concerning the Holy Spirit and the indwelling or anything. It's not even what the text is about, overarchingly. The the verse in Acts 13 where Paul says that God raised him from the dead, that verse does not give enough information to form a, an opinion or a conviction about the operation of God in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the operation of the Godhead. So we've got to be careful, and, and this I'm going to leave us with this. Whenever you talk to somebody, don't interpret what they say through the lens of pedantry. Ask yourself, are they speaking generally? Because it's okay to speak generally. You know what? Guess what? Pink is a girl color. I, years ago, I was gaslit. Something terrible. No, pink's not a girl color, Tony. Yes, it is. Like, I remember in the early 2000s, Spencer's and Hot Topic were selling T-shirts that were pink. They looked like white T-shirts that had been washed with something that was red, and now the white T-shirt is pink. But the, the, the sign on the T-shirt says, don't laugh at me for wearing this shirt. I got it out of your girlfriend's closet. The understanding there is, one, I'm slipping into your girl and, and cucking you. But two, girls wear pink. Your girl has a pink shirt. Now I've got it. That's all the way back in the early 2000s. But we just knew. We just knew. Growing up, pastels and pink, that was girly, and hard colors like red and blue and stuff like that, not pastel, they were boy colors or more typically boy colors. And I was gaslit about uh, gaslit concerning this about 10 years ago. And I'm like, that's crazy. Like, yes, I get it that it's socially acceptable for men to wear pink now. It still doesn't change the fact that the large part of society looks at you and they, 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 they do this. That person is either making a statement 
or he's ignorantly doing, being manipulated into doing something that is counterculture. When you wear pink and it's the truth. Now that may not be the way it is in Djibouti, Kenya. I'm trying to think of where some of our people in the continent of Africa, Nigeria, Cameroon, obviously, but Djibouti, Kenya, Tanzania, but in Western culture, if, if you have a set of fraternal twins, one's a boy and one's a girl, when they're babies, what color onesie do you put the girl in and what color onesie do you put the boy in in order to communicate to people that one's a boy and one's a girl? If Victoria's Secrets wants to have a retail outlet where they sell to little teeny boppers, what would they call their retail sales outlet? They would call it pink. You would put the little girl in a pink onesie. You would put the little boy in a blue onesie. Scott Beck says, you would be a great teacher in a class on the Holy Spirit. Have you thought, have you taught on this? Would it be on video? I have never done an actual series of lessons about the Holy Spirit. Um, it wouldn't, it, it would be something very good to do. I think, uh, I, I'm not good at coming up with lesson plans. I am way more. I tell you what would be really, really cool is if someone had a lesson plan and somebody could take the reins of a live stream and could ask me questions and I could play off of them. Like my brain works in the moment. It's, 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 it really works in the moment. Um, I've, I've all, my synopses have always fired fast. Now they've slowed down in my old age. In fact, I got kicked in the head by a horse and I think I probably lost like 20 IQ points. Like it was rough. I, I'm not, I'm not near the, I'm not near the, the man I was before I got kicked in the head. I don't know if you can see it or not, but there's a little scar right there. It's a, you took 11 stitches, but it, it scrambled my brain. But anyway, why did I say this about the word pink? Um, if somebody around you says, you know, pink's a girl color. Well, you can, you can try to gaslight them. You can mess with them. Be like, no, it's not a girl color. Look at all these men wearing pink. No, you know, that's not what they mean. It's dishonest for you to do that. What is honest is like, yeah, generally speaking, if, if you want to identify something as feminine, you, you paint it pink. Whenever, uh, whenever the sporting goods store wants to up their sales to women, they start stocking pink camouflage. Anyway, I didn't mean to get off on that. I'm, I'm real salty about that, by the way, <laughs> Bob, like being gaslit to me is terrible. Like, look now, I, you can go search this in, in the beginning, pink was actually considered a boy's color because it was more considered to be more impassioned. And then over a few decades, it switched to where girls were pink and boys were blue. But you cannot deny 
you cannot deny the fact that this is how society sees that. The short answer is no. Pastel colors for baby clothing, including blue and pink, were introduced in the mid-19th century. They didn't become sex-specific until the 20th century. Yeah, but we've been in, that. that's the thing. Yes, pastel colors are more for girls, and pink is a girl color. It doesn't matter the history of it. And for the last hundred years, it's been the case, you know? So if you wear a pink tie, you're wearing a girl color. I don't care what anybody says. You know, it's, it's a girl color. In fact, I've, I've, whenever I said this, whenever this came up, I said, you know, if, if I had an agenda where I was trying to destroy the fabric of reality and I was trying to, I was trying to, uh, take away the line of demarcation between male and female. The first thing that I would do, I would start with the easiest things to change. In other words, traditional boy clothing is now acceptable for girls and traditional girl clothing is now accepted for boys. And that's, and you can look. Whenever I was 14, 15 years old, you would not think of a guy wearing anything colored pink. Now it's, now it's acceptable. And in some high schools, you've got boys wearing dresses and high heels. We see it here in Canada all the time. See grown men walking down the road and they're wearing, uh, they're wearing dresses and skirts and got their hair and makeup done. And sometimes they're with, they're with a woman. Yeah. I wear pink sometimes. If anyone wants to call it a girl color, I don't care. I mean, that that's fine, but you can't deny it's a girl color. That's, that's the point. Pink is a girl color. And in fact, even even in this age of non-binary and gender is just a social construct and all of this pink, still a girl color. If you've got a guy that wants to transition into being a girl, the first thing he does is shave his beard, tuck his junk and go get pink shirts. It's the easiest way to self-identify as a woman is to dress in pink. Brandon Wiles says they must be hunting in Candyland. Ain't that the truth? All right. Anyway, I'm going to get off here, guys. Um, I would not deny or affirm. I'd say, well, then you'd be denying reality. Pink's a girl color. All right, folks. That's all I've got. You need. With what we looked at in Acts chapter 13. As tiring as it is. We need to train our minds to scrutinize the literature of the Bible in that way. Context is king, but it's the context of the whole scripture. But whenever I'm looking at something specifically, I have to be honest with what's being said, how it's being said, and how specific the person is speaking. It is the most hateful thing that somebody can do is to take what somebody says generally and convert it and scrutinize it as if they are speaking very specifically. 
All right. That's the point. So don't do that with the Bible. Don't do that with other people. Assume everything you hear is true and only offer a dissent, only argue once you're able to articulate the other person's position to their satisfaction. And you, you'll, you'll be a lot happier and the people around you will be a lot happier. I'm marking you, Tony, you offended me. Now I'm going to rant on how you were against paint. Just joking, by the way. Well, I mean, I appreciate you just joking, but there were people that did that. There were people that tried to get me kicked out of Memphis school of preaching because I said pink is a girl color and I wouldn't back off of it. And it, it made me so mad. I'm like, I'm not saying you can't wear pink. Do whatever you want to do. But for you to sit there and look at me and say, no, you're wrong. Pink's not a girl color. Then you're just lying. You're being dishonest and you're, and you're not, you're not being truthful. You're actually in sin. Like it is, it is an axiom. Pink is a girl color in Western culture in 2024. If you want to identify as a female in 2024, wear pink, wear pink. If you want, if you want your baby, if you want people to come up to your baby and say, oh, that's a beautiful little girl, put it in a pink onesie and have a pink blanket in the bat in the bassinet. Now, if, if you're wearing a pink tie, that's fine. If you have a pink coat, that's fine. But you cannot look at me and say, no, pink is not a girl color. Anyway, but yeah, it is sad. And Brandon Wilde said it is. Amen. Anyway, uh, yeah, that, that, um, yeah, they, they actually said that I was telling people they were going to hell if they wear pink. And like, I never, I never, ever said that. I never, ever said anybody's going to hell if they wear pink. That's stupid. You're interpreting the the fact that you're so entitled and you've been told how special you are your whole life that if I don't agree with you, that that's some kind of affront to who you are, that says a whole lot more about you than it does about me. Anyway, that's all I've got with that. Um, yeah, so what you're saying is that what what anybody has ever said has never followed the phrase, so what you're saying is. <laughs> That's right, wear purple. There you go. Unless it's pastel purple, then you're still wearing a girl color. No, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just playing there. Um. Anyway, guys, that's all I've got here. God bless every one of you. I appreciate you. Uh, I didn't mean to go in an hour and 20 minutes, but that it is what it is. I will tell you this, the, um, the podcast, the, the audio archive for the podcast, um, I spent a couple of years where I didn't do a live stream. And so my audience on Apple podcast, Spotify, and tune in radio, they got used to having like less than 30 minute, more organized podcast. And so I think I've lost a bit of my audience because I'm doing these live streams. So if you would consider going to Podbean and or Apple Podcast or TuneIn Radio 
Spotify and searching cogitations and subscribing. And uh, let's see if we can get the viewership back up. I was getting like 3,000 downloads a month, and now I'm down to about 1,000 downloads a month. But it's because of the change in content. It's my fault. But I'm, I, I rather like the live streams better. All right. God bless everybody. Please go to Cogitations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Tune, and Radio on Podbean. Consider sending us some money in the tip jar near churches at gmail.com. Subscribe in the Substack. And don't forget about Lindsay Dotson, lindsayfaydotson at gmail.com. God bless you. And uh, regardless of what color your coat is, you're fine with me. But if it's pink, it's a girl color. <laughs> God bless you. And we'll catch you on the flip side.